This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, the United Way invests $1.2 million for those in need, and Elections Canada with the pandemic vote. But we begin with the party leaders. It's been just under two years since the last federal election, October 21st, 2019, and hey, we're going to the polls again, this time on September 20th. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau claiming it is a pivotal, consequential moment for Canada, adding that he wants voter approval for his future COVID-19 recovery plans. Well, the Conservatives and the NDP right out of the gate condemning the idea of an early election during a fourth wave, calling it needless and a power grab. Political commentator Amanda Alvaro, co-founder and president of Pomp and Circumstance, joins us now on the feed with her take on the timing, the leaders, the issues, and what to expect from the campaign trail over the next five weeks. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Anne. So let's talk about the timing. This really is the first ever federal COVID campaign that we're underway. Yes, and, and and it couldn't be, you know, I think in some cases we've heard the opposition parties talk about how uh, this is a challenging time, we're potentially facing a fourth wave, why are we having an election right now? And we saw the leader of the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau, come out very early on talking about why timing was so critical. And he said, it's critical because we're at a critical juncture. We've come through um, most of the pandemic, we could potentially be, pace, be facing a fourth wave, but we have, uh, you know, we're leading in terms of vaccinations for eligible Canadians. And now we have to start talking about the recovery. What does that look like? How do we get our economy to bounce back? How do we get small businesses intact? How do we make sure that our kids are staying in school? How do we keep Canadians healthy and protect against a fourth wave and beyond? And this is a time when Canadians should make a decision about how they want to move forward. So I think the timing makes sense from that perspective, and it also makes sense from the perspective that it was a very challenging last session. All right, Parliament, the Liberal leader would say that that there was a lot of obstruction in Parliament. It was hard to move legislation forward. So the potential, when you looked at the polls for a majority, could give them the runway that they need to get more done. What is it that Canadians need to hear from the party leaders over these next five weeks of the campaign? Well, I think there's a few things. I think that they need to know that, um, that there's a plan for recovery, that uh, we will continue to vaccinate Canadians. So while we are leading, we have a lot of Canadians who haven't had their second shot. We actually have up to 6 million Canadians who haven't had their first. So we need a plan for that so that we can return to to normal life. And then they want to hear about the what's next. There's a lot on the table, whether it's childcare or supports for small business, Uh, or looking at topics like climate change, which we know is critical. And and in some ways, we've been really preoccupied with the pandemic itself, right? It's it's really contained all of our our energy and all of our uh, ideas into how we get through it. And now we have to talk about 
What do we do on the other side? And how do we get back to a normal life? But how do we also return to a place where our economy can be on the up and our businesses can be thriving, our kids can go back to school, women can get back into the workforce? These are topics that will really matter to Canadians. You know, Amanda, typically during a federal campaign, really provincial as well, uh, the the typical hot-button issues are climate change, the economy, uh, child care, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. In this case, it appears after this first week of campaigning that it a lot of people are concerned about the leader's position on mandatory vaccinations. And so we look at, for instance, earlier this week in York Region, when the Liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, was uh, on the campaign trail in this area, there were protests about his position on uh, vaccinations. We also understand that there are a lot of people who are reluctant to embrace uh, Aaron O'Toole's sort of laissez-faire attitude about mandatory vaccinations. Exactly. So we saw... We saw Aaron O'Toole uh, come out in response in many ways to the Liberal leader's position and say, we will encourage Canadians to get vaccinated, but we won't mandate it. And I think that for some people, that was, that was alarming because we know we still have 6 million Canadians to vaccinate, and we know that we require that vaccination in order to protect against a fourth wave and obviously to, to allow us to get into the recovery phase. So that became a hot-button issue, and, and in some ways it became a bit of a wedge because it really polarized the two parties from one another. Do you stand with a liberal position of getting as many Canadians vaccinated as possible and in some cases mandating it to return to normal life? Or do you stand with more of the civil liberty argument of the Conservative Party, which is, you know, your body, your health, and we'll just encourage you to do it? One thing that stands out, and I've been watching as you have and all of York Region has been watching the leaders as they are crisscrossing, trying to stump for votes, Jugmeet Singh, he right from the get-go has said, I want to tax the rich. And he's been he's made that almost a priority. What are your thoughts as a political commentator on that kind of approach during this kind of campaign? Well, I think in, in many ways it makes sense for the NDP and for Jugmeet because He's really appealing to a particular type of voter. In many ways, he's looking at a millennial voter um, whose topics of interest will be around issues like affordable housing and fairness and housing supply. Uh, Many people who found themselves out of work or in a really challenged position during the pandemic, and he's creating this wedge, which is fairness and making sure that individuals who found themselves in that bucket find a home and a party. Where he's going to have to compete is with the Liberal leader, who's also making claims around issues related to affordable housing and affordability and getting back to work. So, as usual, you'll find those two parties sort of battling it out in order to attract an appeal to a very similar voter. What about Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party? What do Canadians know about him? What does he need to do to reach out to them beyond being a, a, a cover boy on a magazine which actually contained his party's platform? Well, it, it was it was alarming, I think, to a lot of people when we first saw that image and and not the image itself but the line beneath it the man with the plan i think in some ways there was like a collective cringe amongst women in the country when they read that line 
uh, he's going to have to do better, and he's going to have to do a lot more to appeal. And some of the ways that they'll do that is through, you know, what we often refer to as retail politics or kind of like gimmick politics, um, looking at issues like the GST, uh, day off, and, and finding ways to appeal to Canadians with um, more dollars in your pocketbook. That we'll, we'll hear a lot of that from the Conservatives. It is a tax that has worked for them in the past and one that we're seeing very early on um, as part of their mandate. I think the second thing will be that he needs to, he needs to delineate himself from the social conservative movement and find that moderate conservative to, conservatism that will appeal to more Canadians. So we'll see if he's able to do that over the course of the campaign. We still have, you know, several weeks to go. But the early days suggest that he's made a, an easy gap off the top by creating a cover that probably won't appeal to a lot of Canadians. Last Tuesday, Nova Scotia handed the Provincial Conservative Party a majority victory. So what will that mean in terms of the federal Conservatives' chances to increase in the polls or in points at this stage? It's hard to say. I think, you know, the Conservatives certainly, I think, felt that that was a little bit of wind in their sails. But you'll recall that the the provincial leader of the Conservative Party in Nova Scotia really tried to distance himself from his federal cousins, saying, we're a different party. We stand for different things. We have different values. So I think that in some ways it signals that maybe, you know, there was certainly a change mentality in that province. We haven't seen that across the country. Um, Our polls indicate that Canadians feel like the country's headed in the right direction. They favor how the government handled the pandemic. There's still some anxieties around a fourth wave. And many Canadians are very concerned about turning the key over when they feel like we're, you know, the ship is sailing the right way. So I don't know if it... I think in some ways there's lessons for the Liberals to learn from that particular uh, campaign. Um, But in many ways, I don't think that the Conservatives should be, you know, calling in or claiming that it could result in a victory quite yet. Is there anything, Amanda, that could derail this campaign for either of the three main parties? Yes. Campaigns matter. And we say this all the time. 2015, Justin Trudeau came from behind. He started in third, and he took uh, a majority position. So campaigns can change everything, and that could be from a major issue that sparked to really ending up finding the zeitgeist of the campaign, the zeitgeist of the moment. What is the thing that really captures the attention of Canadians, and are you able to run with that momentum? Um, So a million things could change between now and September 20th, um, and, you know, that's sort of the fun. It's like, it's like the Super Bowl of politics to find out what could happen between now and then, who's going to make the pass, and who's going to score the touchdown. A lot of young Canadians are eligible to vote for the first time in their lives in this election. Is the young vote still important? It's so important. And anyone who says that it's not is really missing the mark. 2015 is a great example of that. Um, when, when the Liberals scored their majority, in many ways they did that because they had the backing of young Canadians. Young Canadians have a lot at stake in this election. They care about climate change. They care about affordable housing. Um, many young Canadians are looking really to start their careers. Uh, they've just faced really trying difficult times through this pandemic, many of them out of work. So their say matters, and they should, you know, they should use that say because they know that it matters. Their vote 
to critically determine the direction of the country. And I think you'll see these leaders trying to appeal to that vote, uh, not just to spark their attention, but to really rally them to come out and vote on September 20th. In just the past few weeks, the Liberal Party's uh, popularity has dropped a few points and the Conservatives has increased, Has ga- they've gained in popularity. Is that a, a sign of the times, do you believe, or is it, you know, this was these were numbers that were taken before the early election was called, before the snap election was called. Is it is it indicative of what's to come? Uh, I don't know. I think it's too early to tell. I, I do think that overall the Liberals have enjoyed um, quite the rise in the polls. Again, the majority of Canadians feel like the country's headed in the right direction. Uh, they feel that the Liberals really guided them through the pandemic. They are very happy with where we're at in terms of the vaccination process. But I guess the question is, um, are you in a position as a Canadian where you're looking at that and saying, I want more, I'm happy with where we're headed, and I'm prepared to put my vote against the recovery with the same leader, or do I want something new? And that's the, you know, that's the question that's been posed to Canadians. It's the single most important question, whether Justin Trudeau is able to make a third appeal and get the majority that he craves in order to take the country through the recovery, or if one of the other leaders is able to capture that moment. 157 seats in 2019, the Liberals, a minority, 13 seats shy of a majority. Where will they find those votes? I think you'll see a sprinkling across the country. I think that there's some seats to be found in Ontario. There's certainly some seats to be found in, uh, on, on the East Coast and on the West. And interestingly, and I wouldn't have said this in 2019, I think that there's some seats up for grabs in Alberta. They don't need a lot, but they need enough to push them over the finish line. So an additional 17, 18, 19 seats is what they'll be looking for. And you'll find that while we'll talk a lot about the airwaves, all of the things that make headlines, the party itself will really focus on the on-the-ground campaigns, identifying the votes, making sure that they get people out to vote in advance polls and in the polls, in those really critical ridings that could make the difference between a minority and a majority government. Amanda Alvaro, political commentator, thank you so much for joining us on The Feed. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. I'm Tina Cortez. The 44th federal general election is underway, but this is an election like no other thanks to COVID-19. And voting may be different from previous elections as well. To take us through what we need to know before September 20th is Natalie Dumontany from Elections Canada. Natalie, welcome to the feed. Thank you very much. So what are the options this time around for electors? So, first of all, you said it's a pandemic election, so we encourage electors to plan early how they're going to vote. Um, They can vote on Election Day, September 20th. There's four advanced voting days from Friday, September 10th to Monday, September 13th. Um, And you can vote by mail or you can vote by um, at any Elections um, Canada offices. 
One other thing that I want to reassure um, electors is that Elections Canada has been working closely with public health authorities from across the province to ensure that polling places are safe. So there'll be sanitizing station at the polling places, you know, the plexiglass barrier at every election desk, single-use pencil, and election workers will be wearing masks, and uh, we will, you know, be sanitizing on a regular basis. Will any sort of proof of vaccination be required at the polling center? No, we will, um, like like I said, we work closely with the uh, public health authorities. So the whatever they're saying for any region in Canada will be respected. And we will encourage electors to be wearing a mask as well. So what if those who want to vote by mail decide to go that route? What do they need to do right now? Okay, so first of all, for anyone voting, I would strongly encourage you to ensure that you are on the register list. And that can be done by going to our website. It's especially important if you moved because, you know, then we might not have your current address. And that's how we send a voter information card that will tell you if you decide to vote in person where you can vote and when you can vote. It's the same thing. So if you want to vote by mail, you can also do it on our website. And you, need, you can apply. You will need to um, prove your address and identity. But you do it online, and um, we will be providing you with a reference number, and you'll be able to check the status of your application. So you'll know if your application has been approved, if it's been mailed, and if we have received um, your um, complete um, voting kit. Um, one thing that's very important to remember is that once you requested to vote by special ballot or by mail, you cannot change your mind. So that's very important to know. You cannot just decide to go in and uh, vote at advanced voting days or election day. And is voting by mail open to everyone? Everyone, every elector can decide to do that. You need to apply, though, by Tuesday, September 14 at 6 p.m. That's the latest you can apply to get your voting kit. And it needs your ballot need to be received before or on Election Day. One thing that is um, important to note is when you vote by mail, you vote by what we call special ballot. And your ballot is not the ballot that you're used to see with all the candidates, you know. Um, it, there's actually going to, it's actually going to be a blank ballot. And you'll need to um, write the name of the candidate you're voting for. And then you put it in the envelope and then another envelope and, you know, all the, the instruction will be uh, provided to you. So voters really need to know about their riding and who's running it in their riding. Yes. And once again, the Elections Canada website is good. You can just, like, by just clicking on your postal code, you'll get, you know, like there's a, a box where you can put your postal code and it will provide you all those information. Candidates um, have until August 30th to submit their nomination paper. So... But as soon as candidates are confirmed, it's going to appear on our website as well. And so tell us once again, if we are choosing to vote by mail, when the ballot must be received by? It needs to be received by September 20th. 
uh, the day of the election. So you can mail it back. Or if you are maybe a little bit unsure, you know, like it's, it's close to the deadline, what you can do if you, if you are in your own writing, you can actually go and drop it off at um, one of the polling stations in your own writing the day of the election. So on election day, you can drop it off, but you can't actually vote that day in person because you've chosen to vote by mail. Is that correct? That's correct. Anything else that we need to remember this time around that is different from previous elections? I think that's one of the things is maybe let's um, talk about the election night result. Um, just so we are you know, um, we're expecting this. Um, depending on how many people, I guess, uh, vote by mail, and we're expecting this time around, we're expecting maybe between two and three million electors to vote my, by mail across Canada, compared to like 50,000 in the last election. So that's just to put things in perspective. So the ballots that are going to be counted are going to be the um, ballots that are uh, uh, from Election Day and Advanced Voting Day first. But after that, it will be like the special ballot. But there's verification that needs to be done, and that can take up to 24 hours after the poll closes on, um, after, uh, the poll closes on September 20th. So we can expect a little bit of delay depending on how it goes. And yes, depending on how it goes, then we may not have the results of mail-in ballots, of special ballots on Election Day, September 20th. Exactly. Okay, so let's go down to, you know, some of the specifics that we need to know if we are registering to vote by mail. Who can we call? What's the name of the website? So the name of the website is electionswithaness.ca. So that's very easy. And if you need to call us, Elections Canada is the 1-800-463-6868. So if we are choosing to vote by mail and we do not have access to the website, we can phone in anytime? Absolutely. And you can go to any of the um, election um, re- uh, returning officer offices during the election. And one more question, Natalie. You know, we have to show proof of identity and address. Are there specific types of ID that we need to provide? Most of us have a driving license, and that is, uh, you know, with that you will prove your identity and your address. If not, again, on our website there's different things that, different identifications that are allowed, so I encourage you to go and see there. Okay, Natalie Dumontany, one more time from Elections Canada, the website and the 1-800 number for our listeners. So elections with an S dot C-A, and the phone number is 1-800-463-6868. Thank you for joining us on the feed. I'm sure we'll talk to you again before September 20th. Thank you very much for having me. After the break, COVID relief grants to help those in need. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
Welcome back. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit people hard in many communities, including right here in York Region. The United Way is offering much-needed financial support to hundreds of organizations that help those in need with things that we take for granted. Daniele Zanotti, President and CEO of the United Way Greater Toronto, joins us now on the feed. Thank you for being with us. Pleasure to be with you, Ed. So the headline reads, United Way invests $1.2 million to address ongoing impacts of the pandemic. That is very powerful wording, and that's a great deal of money. How did you decide that this was the time to announce something like this? As you can imagine, and as the largest funder of social services next to government, United Way is connected to community. Agencies, residents, associations right across York Region that we're in contact with daily. And approaching May or June, we started to get a palpable sense from our frontline providers that basic issues of food, homelessness programming, mental health support was needed, especially as we went into the summer months. And as you can imagine, so many of the headlines today are focused on, did you get your two shots? What's the fourth wave going to look like? But beyond those headlines are these invisible needs in a basement apartment in Markham, or a social housing unit in Newmarket, or your neighbor in York Region, who for the first time is calling for mental health support. So based on that knowledge on the ground, we decided we needed to disperse funding immediately to over 126 programs in the GTA for crisis support right now in neighborhoods across York Region. You also include children and youth programs, things like offering art kits, music programs, tablets and work opportunities. There are also culturally specific programs that serve Indigenous, Black, Chinese, South Asian and other communities. So important and so often falling through the cracks. So critical, and because what we know is that COVID has not been equitable in its distribution, nor is poverty. Like co- poverty, COVID has disproportionately impacted racialized, indigenous, frontline, precariously employed workers, women attempting to flee domestic violence, but often caught in the pandemic. And so this funding is intentionally going to those groups. Addiction services, where they're providing grief counseling for people who have lost a loved one. The Salvation Army that is distributing food for families facing economic barriers, unable to pay their rent across York Region. Yellow Brick House, providing grocery cards for women and kids who have fled abuse but are now trying to find safety in this region that we call home. And so this funding has to be fast, intentional, and nimble to get to the people who need it most. And the best way to do that is to go to the small agencies we walk by York Region, don't know exist, but are providing frontline support. 
So why does this financial burden, if you will, and I don't think you feel it as a burden, but why does it rest on the shoulders of United Way? What does it say about the level of support from the federal government, the provincial government, and from municipal governments? I think, you know, we have seen unprecedented collaboration across COVID. In fact, this emergency investment of $1.2 million from United Way is on the heels of a $31 million investment from the Government of Canada at the beginning of COVID in March, and then some of our own local love emergency fund. It also builds on work that the province has done and the municipalities have invested in as well. And so what I would say is that we have experienced unprecedented collaboration from all levels of government. We've experienced unprecedented generosity from donors, residents, companies from across York region, and it is imperative that as we attempt to move into recovery, we do not forget those most impacted by COVID, who will be impacted not for a month or for six months, but potentially years to come. And we need to maintain this collaboration if we want to move out of it. This investment from United Way, 1.2 million, is an emergency response. But we're going to need to keep this momentum going if we want to build a region that is great for all. York Region residents will benefit from this investment, but let's also talk about the awareness that is now being raised for those who live in York Region and the understanding that the dollars that they donate are going directly to support people in need and organizations who help those in need. Very critical to remind people, and thank you, Anne, that dollars raised go directly to programs in York Region, whether it's Blue Door in East Willembury or the Canadian Mental Health Association of York Region or Chippewas of Georgina Island First Nation. These are local programs right across our region. But what COVID has also done is not only underlying the importance of frontline agencies like the 280 that we support, but it's also validated that these social pressures exist in York Region. Increasing number of people reaching out for mental health support. Increasing number and visibility of people living homeless or in the rough right across York Region, and an increasing number of people working frontline jobs who are having a tough time paying rent in our region. And it's these conversations that we need to maintain, in addition to the investments, if we want York Region to continue to be a destination for great families, great jobs, and great opportunities. We cannot forget those most impacted by COVID, and this investment by United Way is but one emergency signal that the need is great 
and it will be for years to come. Daniela, you're the president and CEO of United Way Greater Toronto. I know that you have a tremendous responsibility, but I also understand that you are in the trenches. What's it like for you to actually meet those wonderful folks who have reached out to United Way and said, we need help. And I'm talking about the organizations, but I'm also talking about the people who will benefit from this, these grants that United Way is providing. In my three decades of work in this field, in my years as a resident of York Region, I have never been so humbled and concerned at the same time, Anne. Concerned because I've never seen the depths of poverty, the layers of issues that people are faced with, precarious jobs, lack of affordable housing, lack of access to mental health, inability to access supports where and when they need them across York Region and our nine municipalities. But at the same time, in the face of that despair and deepening of social issues, I have never seen the outpouring of donor, government, company, labor, commitment, and generosity. And I think we have an unprecedented moment now to use an exit from COVID to bring together the caring spirit of York Region and care for those neighbors and families and neighborhoods most impacted close to home. We can't talk about charity in other parts of the world without addressing the needs right in our York region. And this opportunity with you on the feed is a perfect example for us to reach out to neighbors and say, join us, help, because your impact, whether you volunteer or give a buck, does make a change locally in your neighborhood. On September 20th, Canadians are going to the polls. What would you like to see from the next government? I'd love to see continued commitment in social infrastructure. The frontline agencies that prevent crisis long-term, not address it once it's happened, but how do we support crisis before need for affordable housing right across york region consideration of child care as a right for women and families so that they can enter the workforce that we can provide critical early years continued discussion about good jobs with paid sick leave and sick days and goodness let's revisit our seniors care programs. These champions that have built the region and the country deserve a social and health system that they've built and that dignifies their final years. Here, here, on all fronts, Daniela, what is the easiest way for anyone listening right now to donate to support the United Way? Visit www.unitedwaygt.org. Daniele Zanotti, President and CEO of the United Way Greater Toronto, thank you, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Anne.
Jim Lang is next with the 482 Collective. There is a really cool organization that you need to know about called the 482 Collective. And as they say on their Instagram, helping people who are bravely struggling to make ends meet after experiencing trauma or abuse. To talk more about what they do and how they're helping a lot of people get through tough times, thrilled to be speaking to Maureen Lesham, their founder and director of the 482 Collective. Maureen, how are you? I'm great, Jim. Thank you. How are you? Well, fine. It's it's a wonderful concept. Just for listeners who maybe don't understand, what exactly is the 482 Collective? So we are a grassroots charity bringing people together to reimagine how we can help people who are struggling to make ends meet. And um, we actually launched just as the pandemic hit, and it's it's been quite staggering to see how much need there is in our community. Um, most of the people that we are helping have either fled abuse and are trying to rebuild their lives after experiencing human trafficking, sexual assault, unexpected tra- trauma. Um, we also support the homeless community. And I'll, I'll add that it's our approach that really stands out. Uh, we feel that we are thoughtful and intentional in our approach. And what we do a little bit differently than most organizations is that we really listen to our clients and we we try to move mountains to make sure that we give them exactly what they're asking for and not what we necessarily think that they need. So our approach is it's slower, it's a more deliberate approach, but we feel from our clients that the response is incredible. Well, Maureen, you just alluded to the fact that this all started just as the pandemic hit. Why, why create the 42 Collective? How did this come to be with you and your staff? As a kid, when, whenever I've witnessed any type of injustice, I, I could feel it in my bones. And I, I was really outspoken about it, like unusually outspoken for a kid. And I've carried that restlessness into my adult life. Um, I've gone through some certification process for medical trauma and crisis intervention. And I've spent many years volunteering and I've... I've just this is the type of work that I'm so passionate about, and if not now, then when? And as we know, you know, domestic abuse has almost tripled, suicide has tripled, human trafficking has skyrocketed in numbers, and and really, if not now, then when? You know, when when it's a time that is the need is so so great. Speaking of Maureen Lesham, she's the founder and director of the 42 Collective. Get more information at their website, the number, the number 482, so the42collective.com. And you're talking about, Maureen, a wide variety of people, young and old women, young and old men, youth, elderly. And what we're talking about here, people experiencing trauma or abuse, it knows no sex, gender, age group. It's Unfortunately, it's all-encompassing. A hundred percent. And and the way we see it is a person in need is a person in need. So we don't care what background you come from, what um, what language you speak, what someone's sexual orientation is. If you are in need and we can help you, we will do everything possible to help you. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening going, well, you know what, I- I'm being touched by what Maureen is saying. I'd like to help. And I know you have something coming up in September. Tell the listeners about it and how they can be involved. 
So we are planning a fundraising event, um, which will likely be in October, possibly November. Okay. We will have all of that information listed on our website, the 482collective.com. We can also be found on Instagram and Facebook at the 482 Collective. All of our information will be posted out there. We, of course, welcome donations. We welcome the community to get involved. Uh, businesses, volunteers, young and old. Our youngest volunteer is three. Our oldest is, I think, 76. So we love community involvement. Um, and it's just a way to inspire people to get involved. And, you know, I mean, a lot of charities, we've talked, we deal with a lot of charities here at the radio station, Marine, and it's been a challenge through COVID. How have you guys been able to survive and thrive and get to where you're at right now through the COVID pandemic and through this experience the last, well, over a year and a half? It's definitely challenging. We've had to think outside the box, the way we do deliveries, the way we accept donations, the way we give donations. Um, but thankfully, our community is absolutely wonderful and people want to help. Um, we do accept, you know, even some used clothing that's in great condition, but we ask people to wash it beforehand. And we've been really fortunate enough that people have listened to our request and, and really want to help and are going the extra mile to do to do it just that. Well, so it, it, when there's a will, there's a way. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned time or money, whatever you can do to help Maureen and her staff at the 42 Collective is deeply appreciated. The number, 42, the482collective.com. Uh, look at their website, see what you can do to help, and keep an eye out for a big event coming up October, November. As they say, helping people who are bravely struggling to make ends meet after experiencing trauma or abuse. Maureen, this has been a real pleasure, and thank you so much for what you're doing. You're making a difference. And, uh, I mean, that little girl who wanted to fight injustice, it's great to see you never lost that passion. Uh, thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jim. Thank you for the opportunity. All the best now, Maureen. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. When we come back, we learn more about multiple myeloma. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Multiple myeloma, what is it? Who does it affect and how is it treated? Heather Seaman with that story. We're joined by Tanya Zigomanis, the Ontario representative on the Patient Advisory Council with Myeloma Canada. Thank you for joining us, Tanya. Thank you for having me. Share with our listeners what multiple myeloma is. Multiple myeloma is a cancer of the plasma cells. Um, it occurs when there's something that goes wrong with your cells and it multiplies the bad cancer cells that crowd out the bone marrow and crowd out the healthy white uh, and red blood cells. And as a result, um, it fills the bone marrow with cancer cells and those cells get circulated throughout the body. It's a type of blood cancer. So how is myeloma different from melanoma? I know people often confuse the two. So a lot of people get the two terms confused, definitely. Um, I even have family members that still call my cancer melanoma. Melanoma is a cancer of the skin. Uh, it's a skin cancer. So myeloma is a blood cancer, um, completely different. 
And uh, sorry, one more thing. Melanoma can get diagnosed early. Um, so someone might have a little mark on their eye, um, eyelid or on their cheek and they can remove it and nothing will ever come of it again. Uh, myeloma is an incurable cancer. So myeloma will never go away. Um, it's just managed at this point more like a chronic illness. Tell us about your diagnosis and how you're doing. So the average age of myeloma patients is um, close to 70. I was diagnosed two years ago, Mother's Day of May 2019, um, at the age of 37. So um, quite surprising. Um, And my bone marrow biopsy, which is kind of the standard, gold standard of how myeloma gets diagnosed, was... um, (laughs) very clearly indicating that I had 95% myeloma cells in my bone marrow, which meant that it was pretty far progressed. Um, My hemoglobin also was quite low, so I was very anemic, very tired. I had rib pain. Um, I did discover after diagnosis that I had some lesions and fractures in my ribs. I had a lesion in the middle of my back. Um, So I went down the road of doing four months of chemotherapy, and I did the majority of that at Southlake in Newmarket, um, and I think it's called the Stronic Regional Cancer Center. So that was um, from about May of 2019 until September of 2019, and then I had a stem cell transplant at Princess Margaret, which is the standard of care for patients under 70, um, that they get their own cells back after rounds of chemotherapy, um, and that kind of resets the immune system. And um, at about 90 days, I was declared to be in a very good partial remission. Um, So in January of 2020, right before the pandemic, I started on a maintenance chemo pill, which is pretty ordinary for myeloma patients. It's called Revlimid. Um, And I take that every night and I'm kind of slowly, slowly have, um, you know, been on a healing journey since then. Is myeloma hereditary? Is there a cure? Tell us about treatment and how it affects someone's quality of life. Yes. So, um, When I was diagnosed, I was extremely upset to learn that it's an incurable cancer. So unlike some of the tumor cancers um, where you either radiate or you go through chemo or you have a surgery to remove it, um, you can't do that with myeloma. You can get the cancer down even to 0% in your body. And I think now I'm at, I I don't necessarily know if it's 0%, but I've reduced my cancer burden by about 99%. But it will always be there. Um, Also, unlike other blood cancers like leukemia and lymphoma, where you can go through chemo and or a stem cell transplant from a donor, myeloma doesn't work like that. Um, Where those types of cancers can potentially be cured, um, it's the type of blood cancer that is incurable. So um, going forward, people will go on different drug regimes. Um, Usually if they had a really good response from their stem cell transplant, they're eligible for another one um, three, four, five, ten years later. Uh, You know, the average life expectancy is about six years now for myeloma, but um, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Comorbidities is the biggest, meaning um, someone who is over 70 who has myeloma, for example, may have a number of other issues, and that um, that kind of contributes to how long you can live with the illness. So a young, healthy person should be able to live with the illness for 10, 15, 20 years um, if it's managed well with the meds. Tell us about some of the work Myeloma Canada does. 
Myeloma Canada is a truly remarkable organization, um, and I knew that from right when I was diagnosed. Myeloma Canada um, spreads a lot of awareness about this type of cancer that doesn't get a lot of recognition um, because it's it's known as one of the more rare types of cancer. Um, unfortunately, that's not the case anymore as more and more people are getting diagnosed with myeloma. When I was diagnosed, I believe it was eight people a day in Canada. Now it's up to nine people a day. So um, for some reason, it's growing. It is not a hereditary cancer. Um, and so that um, we know it's not, it doesn't run through families. Um, myeloma Canada is doing a lot to educate uh, Canadians on how to manage myeloma, what happens when you get diagnosed, to provide support for caregivers because caregivers play a really important role with patients. Uh, myeloma Canada also does something called the Multiple Myeloma March, um, which is their own way of fundraising, um, doing walks to raise money. Um, you know, it's been a really hard year in the past um, year and a half for all types of charitable organizations, especially for cancer. And we are doing all that we can to spread awareness, um, to promote these walks, which um, for the most part in the last year, the fundraising walks have gone virtual. But we're hoping that come September, which is the month um where most of the walks start across Canada, that we'll be able to do some in person safely. Um, but Myeloma Canada has been instrumental in raising funds, and these funds will go towards research, research grants. Um, um, it's going directly to provide support to the patients and the caregivers and set up programs. Um, it's really quite amazing. And briefly tell us how people can find a walk in their region. Myeloma Canada has set up ways to find a walk near nearest to you. So each region has a walk. For example, one of the biggest and most successful ones in York region is the one based out of Newmarket, and that's the one that I've been part of for the last two years. Tell us a bit about support groups for those living with myeloma. I understand you spearheaded one in York region. So this is quite a new thing. We... You know, originally we have support groups based out of Toronto, um, Hamilton. Um, there's several support groups all around Ontario, but the York Region support group we just started at the end of April, and I stepped forward to spearhead that um, because I felt that Toronto had an amazing support group. They have a huge list of members, um, and they have meetings every other month, and they have really great speakers. And now things have gone virtual, obviously, um, and they have share and care meetings, but um, because the group is so large, myself and one of the leaders in in Myeloma Canada thought, well, it might be a good idea to have one in York Region, because York Region is also a very big um, area. It covers a lot of myeloma patients. I live in York Region, and I know a lot of myeloma friends um, that I've made in the York Region area, and um, they told me we would appreciate having something that's not out of Toronto, so we thought what a great idea to start um, a support group in York Region. Anything else you'd like to share? Well, I, I know any patient that I've encountered that is involved in Myeloma Canada or even a member of a support group is just so uh, happy with Myeloma Canada. They feel that they've been given a lot of support. Um, Myeloma Canada has published their own guide on how to get through this illness. Um, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're 
going through bone disease, whether you're going through a stem cell transplant. And um, I know that both caregivers, including my husband, for example, um, who is instru- instrumental in being my caregiver during my stem cell transplant, and a lot of people have to lean on spouses, family, and friends to be caregivers during their stem cell transplant specifically. Um, and they find that Myeloma Canada has amazing resources for that. Um, it's it's a very rare illness, and it's incurable, and it seems bleak once you've been diagnosed, but there's a lot of support out there, and there are a lot of amazing success stories of people thriving and living with myeloma for many years and doing well and living, you know, a very good life. Thank you for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. For more information on Myeloma Canada, their flagship fundraiser, the 5K Multiple Myeloma March happening this fall, and to find a support group, including one right here in York Region, check out the website myelomacanada.ca or myeloma.ca. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.